There we go. There we go. I think it's the first time that I'm saying this in public. Oh, <laughs> oh look at that. There we go. There we go. So, so, so before we go to serious stuff then, uh, what do you need to do to become a Canadian? Sorry for saying sorry media presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hi, this is Dr. Susan Little. And Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, and this is the Per Podcast. Did I, did I sense a little hesitation there in your start? No, not at all. Not at all. Number 91. Is Dr. it? Dr. Little, number 91. I don't uh, feel a day away, over 20. Nine away of, <clears throat> oh no, this is number 92. Sorry, I <laughs> said corrected. It's number 92. Eight away of the number 100 podcast. Yeah. Podcast. And, who's, our, uh, who's our 100th podcast guest? Guess. We don't know. We, uh, last time yeah. we challenged our audience to give us some uh, some tips. So uh, we'll need to find someone really good. And maybe we can ask our guest that is on this week, who should be, and he obviously cannot say himself or mention himself, <laughs> uh, who do we have on this week? Well, I'm very happy that we have Dr. Paolo Stigal with us this week. I can't believe it took us this long to get you on our podcast, Paolo. Um, we had Sheila. Was Sheila Robertson has been on with us once. Has she been on twice, Yola, or think, just once? Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, maybe once anyway. Um, so uh, I'm, yeah, I'm a, I don't know how it got past us that it took us this long to get you on our podcast. So I'll let you go ahead and just introduce yourself a little bit there, Paolo. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Yol. It's, uh, I'm super happy to be here. Uh, I'm actually purring here uh, to, be, to be on the show today. So thanks for having <laughs> me. It's, it's great, you know, like we've, I've known you both for a long time and you've been uh, great influencers in, in our profession, in our profession and, and it's, it's great to be here. So I'm actually an associate professor of veterinary anesthesia and pain management at here at the University of Montreal. I've been working here for the past uh, seven years, um, and yeah, and digging very much. And you know, before that, I was I am I'm actually I was born in Brazil, and I did my studies there, uh, did some of my training there, my master's and PhD with uh, focusing feline analgesia. And then moved on to North America back in 2006 and worked up, up you know, we, at the University of Wisconsin, Guelph, and finally here. So, and today I'm here, you know, a classic professorship in North America involved in research, clinics, uh, teaching, and in, in, in outreach as well. Wow. So we have another Canadian in the house. Yay. <laughs> Canadian-ish. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm actually also Canadian now. I'm oh, Canadian really? Brazilian. Yes, Are you I am. Really? I'm a very proud Canadian. What a beautiful, amazing country to be. Oh, congratulations. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Awesome. I did not know that. Congratulations. Yeah. You know, for the latest news, you just have to tune in to the Per Podcast and you get it. 
There we go. There we go. I think it's the first time that I'm saying this in public. Oh, <laughs> oh look at that. There we go. There we go. So, so, so before we go to serious stuff then, uh, what do you need to do to become a Canadian? Oh, uh, there we go. That's a, so you need to spend some years here, like first of all, and then you and you can apply for there. There are ways of doing this. So for me, since I'm board certified and I'm, you know, I'm a veterinarian and all that, uh, I could apply for the skilled work uh, permanent residency thing. So it took me two to three years to apply to be able to apply for the permanent residency. And then I think uh, you have to spend about a thousand days in the country for the next two or three years um, and then to apply for the Canadian seats and shit. And then so I think the whole process took me five to six years. And, uh, and it's a beautiful ceremony. You learn how to sing the anthem, you know, then there are people saying now oh, you're Canadian, you know, appreciate this country and, and you learn lots about history and etc. So it's been exciting, yeah. So do you cool. ever do a test like in the US? Yeah, you have to do like, I think at 40 multiple choice questions, mm. uh, you do in a room with uh, 200 people. And if I can tell you that Beatrice, my wife, she was the first one to finish, it was pathetic. I felt like, what is she doing up front? <laughs> She's done with the exam. <laughs> She's such a little nerd. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, but that that's what happens and then, they tell you, you passed. And then you go through the interview process. And I, I was telling the person, okay, I'm a professor at the Faculty of Veterinary Medicine. And this, this, the, this individual from the Canadian government, she said, okay, I have a friend who studies there. Um, and I was like, oh, there we go. You're friends with my students. So I couldn't have lied. <laughs> <laughs> small world, yeah, small yeah. So I just heard that the test in the U.S. is getting more difficult. Another thing that uh, our omnipotent uh, uh, president has done. So, uh, so I'm, th I'm thinking of maybe doing it, but I'm not totally sure yet. So, yeah, <laughs> I probably failed that test. You know. Well, Paulo and his, and his I, wife. I, I do have to tell you the story about my driver's license here in uh, in when I came back. So I had a driver's license when I was here a long time ago. So I came back and uh, and um, and you get a booklet you have to read, obviously. And then you get it, you have to do the, the, the test and then you have to sit in a car and drive around. And that was really easy. I mean, that was too stupid to be to, to four words, but the test, you know, the, the night before uh, Daniel said to me, so should you be studying for your test? And I'm like, I've been driving for 30 years. How difficult can it be, you know? So I went through the booklet and I was like, okay, you know, it's a, there's there's information there that I probably never need. How far you have to stand away from the, you know, the the the, the train tracks when there is no beam. And I said, are there train tracks here without beams? You know, it's crazy. <laughs> so um, so I was I came to the the office and I was like talking to uh, the lady and the lady said, okay, you can take the test two ways. You can either take it by um, written test, which I would really recommend, or you can do it by the computer, which I would not recommend because if you make an answer wrong, it's done. You can't change it. So I would really do the written test. And so do you understand there's two ways you can do it? One is written, which I would really do. And I said, okay, let me take the computer test. And she looked at me like, did you just listen to me, young man? So I did the computer test and the first 
four questions. Okay, you, have, you could have five questions wrong and then the 60 failed. So the first four questions I had wrong. And you see, like, <laughs> so I sweated through 20 following questions, you know, because it's like, okay, one more and I'm going to fail. So I passed it, you know, the back of my teeth or whatever you say. In, in your teeth, yeah. And uh, so I came home and I said to Daniel, hmm, you know, I almost failed the test. And he said, I would have laughed so hard. You would have. I guess you're a surgeon, so you're used to pressure. <laughs> exactly. So, oh, well. All right, let's talk about cats. Let's talk about cats, baby. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, Paulo, tell, tell us, um, so you already um, told us that as a, a professor, you're, you have quite a varied job, right? You have some research and some teaching and some average. Just, just tell us um, about how much of that time is research time, roughly, percentage-wise. Right, it should be 30% according to my contract, but it's probably more like 40, getting close to 50% now. Wow. And, uh, and it has been very... Normally when people start, it should be 30. I think, okay, it's probably 10 or 15, but you get more? Well, I think it's going well, I find, <laughs> in terms of funding publications, right. students and, and fun. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really digging doing my research and working with my team, my group. I have a, an excellent group uh, in terms of students and collaborators. Uh, research associates and uh, it, it's been working really well so it's it's exciting and you do know that the podcast is open access so your administrators can listen to it too and say hey maybe we should cut down that research so this Paulo guy a little bit if, if they're listening to it you all you can ask me for a pay raise a pay like just just give more money just give the, the man more money he deserves it like <laughs> all right good so, so what what is right now oh sorry i think we talked over each other yola yeah we said the same thing we there just spoke us what his research is about now well my research since my arrival here is strongly related to pain management as you guys know and as a as a means of improving animal welfare in general and we do not like but studying complicated things that are not practical or immediately uh, applicable in practice. We really like to, to study and come up with ideas that I, you know, we can go into lectures and uh, teach practitioners and they can, can go back into practice and, and, and apply that knowledge tomorrow. So we, we've been looking to issues that, you know, clinical issues like dental pain, you know, I, I guess we're gonna talk a little bit more about that later. Yeah. Uh, pain assessment tools like the feline grimace scale, um, the intraperitoneal uh, analgesia technique, you know, like the splash of bupivacaine that one can do during space surgery, for example, was something that, you know, was very nice to look at here. Um, and recently, we've been looking now at opioid-free anesthesia, trying to come up with anesthetic techniques uh, involving a multimodal approach but that does not include opioids, which is, is a major problem internationally. Like most of our colleagues, they do not have access to opioids. So we got to find ways of keeping cats comfortable during surgery without opioids. So 
very exciting uh, different subjects, but all related to pain management, trying to improve feline health and, and welfare mainly. I'm so glad you're, you're tackling the non-opioid um, uh, options because uh, all of us, you know, you and Yola and I, uh, we lecture in many different places and I'm, I'm always surprised at how uh, limited access to opioids is for veterinarians. Um, when it's one of our, you know, I, I can't think of practicing without opioids, right? I, that would be, I'd be hard pressed. Um, and, and yet we often lecture in countries where they have no access to opioids. It's, that's a critical problem. So that's a great topic to dive in. I wrote down four topics. We're going to talk dental pain. We're talking feline grimace scale. We're talking about interperitoneal local analgesia and opioid-free anesthesia. And so let's talk about uh, the last two first. And then the next episode, we'll talk about the grimace scale because I am so excited about that too. Uh, so opioid-free anesthesia, how to do it. Let's uh, do it in... Uh, because we have a lot of people from all over the world listening to the podcast. So this, this would be very, very helpful for people to listen to. And, and, you know, even people in the U.S. that have a lot of excess of opioids might think about some alternatives too. Well, and there's also times even in North America when sometimes opioids are in short supply too, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in the early days of the pandemics when so many people were in ICUs, there, there was a little bottleneck there for a while. So yeah, relevant topic. Right, right Carlo, how to do it? Let's, let's talk about it. This is exciting. I think the first thing that we have to understand is that we are not there yet. We don't know if we can make it without it or not. And this is exactly what we're trying to, to look at right now. So what we can tell people is there is that th there are some different techniques that should be used, for example, in cats undergoing surgery. For, for example, the classic non-steroidal should always be given if there aren't any contraindications for that. You know, people sometimes they have just fear for nothing or they just heard that, you know, cats may develop acute renal failure if you give non-steroidal. So all these myths and all that. So the first one, get your non-steroidal checked if you if you feel that there are any there aren't any contraindications for that uh, the second one as we're going to be talking about later there are very simple uh, local anesthetic techniques that can be performed on a daily basis you don't need the ultrasound guided techniques or something like super fancy like fancy epidurals or brachial plexus block even if you haven't been taught you know you can still perform dental blocks, intratesticular blocks, intraperitoneal and incisional anesthesia, for example. All of this can be applied for most of the patients undergoing uh, spay-neuter programs, for example, or even dental care. Um, and then you can combine within your protocols, your anesthetic protocols, for example, uh, ketamine yeah. and dexmedetomidine. There are also two different analgesics that you can use it. And depending on the timing, depending on the, um, the painful or the pain severity, for example, you might be able to get by with just these four classes of analgesics that I just mentioned. And now the question that we're looking at is that, it, can we do it with all these type of procedures without opioids? Or in the end of the day, some of these patients, we still need 
uh, like the administration of buprenorphine, methadone, torfanol, whatever you have available in your country. Because we're, we're very lucky here. We don't, we kind of take this for granted that we have opioids, in a, you know, in two seconds, there's some opioids going nowhere that you can give it to a, to a cat, but that, that's not the case internationally, as you mentioned before. It was really, um, you mentioned ketamine, and that's, uh, I know in, in recent years, there was quite a move to make sure that ketamine was declared an essential medicine for veterinarians, right? To keep it uh, available. Yeah. Exactly, um, exactly. Yeah, and what did that come out of? Like, why was ketamine in danger of, of, uh, of veterinarians? Were they in danger of losing access to ketamine? It's a party drug. Yeah, but... Exactly. It's used for recreational purposes and it's abused as well. But something that we have to make sure that the potential for abuse with ketamine, it's much, much lower than alcohol, for example, you know, and for other drugs that are out there, for example. So, yes, there is a need for better control, for better scheduling, perhaps. But this is a critical drug in veterinary medicine. If you have uh, disaster areas, for example, if you need to get an animal out of there, you would need ketamine involved, you know. Uh, if you're, in, you know, doing a spay-neuter program in field conditions, probably ketamine will be involved. It's, and it's not everyone who has inhalant anesthesia available internationally up to this day. So we got to make sure that, you know, ketamine is an essential drug. And I think there was something related to the, uh, I'm not sure the, the, United Nations uh, meetings and et cetera in China, I think, was asking for, to reschedule to a whole different level ketamine that would make things very hard for veterinarians. So you can imagine how this would affect animal welfare. You know, now you're going to have to do all these crazy procedures with what? Pantobarbital, but, you know, it's also scheduled. So it becomes this crazy thing. And and uh, as, as you mentioned, I had some colleagues in Asia saying that they actually only pretty much use ketamine for anesthesia in these countries. Mm -hmm. So that would have been a major issue. And luckily, we're still apparently good to go for the moment. But Paulo, I always understood that ketamine alone is not a good anesthetic drug. So tell a little bit about that. Exactly. That's a great point. And when I say ketamine, I was trying to say maybe ketamine-based right. anesthetic protocols and not ketamine alone. That's a very point, a very good point for clarification. Ketamine is one of the worst things that you can do to an animal to anesthetize an animal with ketamine alone uh, because it does not provide muscle relaxation. So the animal becomes rigid. Uh, there's, uh, uh, there's no muscle relaxation, the, you know, it's just hypertonus and all those things. It provides dissociative anesthesia with amnesia, but it has been reported to, uh, to induce terrible uh, hallucinations, for example, in people. And so I, I'm, I'm sure animals, they might have to undergo through that as well. Uh, so this is the reason why you should always give ketamine in combination with a sedative, a muscle relaxant, and a drug that provides effective analgesia. Just going back, ketamine, yes, we were talking about, you know, that it has what we call anti-hyperalgesic effects. You know, there is some level of analgesia, but it's never a standalone drug for pain management. Unfortunately, Wait, what it combines, 
Sorry, oh. Yola. Unfortunately, it combines with a lot of other drug classes, doesn't it? Like it mixes well with with uh, different multimodal protocols. So yeah. Yeah, we're exactly. That that's sorry. That's where that. we we go back to to the kitty magic. I yeah. love the way we say kitty magic. Everybody loves it because it is a combination of an alpha two agonist uh, with an opioid plus or minus a benzodiazepine and ketamine in the end of the day to, to induce a surgical death of anesthesia. It seems that we're a little off, uh, Dr. Susan and I, because we talk a lot, uh, you know. <laughs> I, know. <laughs> no, I, I know what it is. Normally, we're so sensitive to this, and, uh, and this time it is, you know, we're so mesmerized by, by you, Paula, that we want to speak immediately to ask you a question. So uh, we'll have to take turns. It's your turn, Yola. Oh, is it? Is it? Yeah, that, that's great. So I, I wanted to talk a little bit about your intratesticular local analgesia or anesthesia. So what do you use? How do you use it? And why do you use it? So the intratesticular block, and we can talk about the intraperitoneal later for, for the female uh, cats. I haven't studied much actually in my lab, the intratesticular block, but there are studies, including one of yours, you'll, uh, in the use of intratesticular block in cats. Basically, people, they have the wrong impression that you know cats are anesthetized, so you don't need to do a local block because they are already anesthetized. But what you have to remember is that pure anesthetics, they will only block the perception of pain, meaning that if you don't give proper analgesics to this individual undergoing a surgical procedure, when this patient or this cat wakes up, he's going to feel all that uh, surgical stimulus and all that, everything that uh, happen during surgery. So it is, it is still a benefit of giving an intertesticular block before neutering a cat, you know, before the castration itself. So the goal here, um, ideally the lidocaine, for example, that you use like 0 0.25, 0 0.3 miles per testicle, it's gonna be quickly absorbed uh, by the lymphatic vessels and, and actually you're gonna be able to anesthetize uh, your spermatic cord actually. Um, and that has been shown to not only decrease anesthetic requirements intraoperatively, you know, you are probably going to avoid that sympathetic stimulations, those increases in heart rate and blood pressure that you could have during surgery, but also you may provide postoperative analgesia in cats. So you're not going to probably not going to have to give um, uh, an opioid postoperatively if you had the block. And just to finally clarify, there's a, a lot of misconception that, you know, castration is not painful. And there are studies in the literature showing that castration produces what we call hyperalgesia and uh, a level of discomfort to this cat. So they merit uh, definitely an intertesticular block. And it's very simple, very quickly. You do, you know, that you do that quick prep, you do the block, and right after you can perform surgery. And it's interesting that you say that because the issue that I see is that people normally use kind of a sedate, because cat castration is so simple, they kind of use a sedation type of anesthesia. And so they are already under dosing these cats. And I used to, when I castrated, you know, what the technique is, I mean, you have to, of course, cut into the, the scrotum and the testicle out, and then you have to kind of pop the testicle out cats always responded to that, always. And since the block, 
it's not true anymore. So you know that you're probably doing something good. So can you explain a little the, the step? So if I want to do this from now on in my feline practice, and I would, you know, ask anybody to do this. So what do you do? How do you do it? So I'm going to share for the first time here <laughs> a, a protocol that we've been using here and we are very excited about because it goes along the same lines that you're saying, Yo. So we sedate our cats with dexmedetomidine, 20 micrograms per kilo plus butorphanol, 0.2 milligrams per kilo. And then the cat is, is pretty well sedated, okay? Remember that, oh yeah, this is a high dose. Yes, it's not a classic sedative dose of dexmedetomidine. You, you wanna reach a bit, a bit more sedation because suddenly, you know, in a couple of seconds, you, you wanna reach uh, surgical anesthesia. And then this is maybe not too practical, but if you put a catheter, an IV catheter, and you give 0.5 to one milligram per of ketamine, it's nothing. You get unconscious in that patient for three minutes and you do the local block, the intratesticular block and you neuter that cat. So that would be the overview of just the anesthetic protocol. You've, you're done with surgery, you antagonize with that spamazole, cat is up and happy. If you, you know, you can do the hands-on monitoring, you can just throw a pulse oximeter and things are good. Uh, now talking specifically about the intratesticular block, once the cat is under anesthesia, for example, you gave that bolus of ketamine, the cat is no longer conscious. Uh, that's when, you know, you do the prep, you know, some people, they're just going to remove the hair um, and then do a quick scrub. And then you, that's when you do the 0.2 to 0.3 mouse per, per testicle. You know, the, the testicle, you put the needle within the parenchyma, you know, the testes and it's gonna feel really hard and you do it bilaterally um, and you finish the prep, the, the final scrubbing and you go for it. I don't think there's a secret. It's a really, what we call the low level, you know, yeah. basic anesthetic block. And that is without adrenaline. So it's just lidocaine. Just lidocaine. You, you don't need adrenaline. Or just the lidocaine you get out of the bottle, you squirt it in. Lidocaine 2%, classic one without any additives and uh, have fun. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, th I think that's really interesting. Although I do have to tell you that 99% of the people that do these castrations will not put a catheter in. Uh, yes. and probably will not give ketamine or they probably will give ketamine intramuscularly and then it takes a long time and it hurts like hell. So, so what, can you do this protocol also with your protocol and then without the ketamine? I, I don't think so. I don't think the, the cat, you have to remember that like just, just as an option to, you know, I was giving just uh, this new protocol that we're giving IV a tiny little bit of ketamine that it's almost nothing. You just produce unconsciousness for, for three minutes and et cetera, and the animal is up. But I understand practitioners won't be using that regularly. So if you still have a protocol that you use ketamine, you're probably going to add some three to four milligrams per kilo of ketamine intramuscular, and that kind of becomes your kitty magic. And then you reach unconsciousness. Um, and this is important because only when the cats are sedated, I don't think they're 
sleeping enough first to, to, to perform this local block, I think it's going to be painful. And you probably, you know, since the cat is still somehow conscious, uh, conscious is, and he's just sedated, as you mentioned before, you'll, you're probably going to have that bunny kick while you're doing the, uh, the surgery, the castration itself later, if you don't add ketamine somewhere in your protocol. And I think it's also very much safer to have at least an IV line ready. So if something goes wrong, then you're there. You don't have to scramble at that time. So maybe people should take time to put in an IV. Yeah, I agree. Good yeah. practices. Yeah. yeah. For cat neuters, though, you always get the pushback, right? That it it can take as long to put in the IV, right? They're very short procedures. So I think a lot depends on the patient in front of you. You know, are they ordinarily ordinary young, low risk? You know, it's going to be quick. Um, versus, is it a, a patient that you're more worried about for even though the surgery time is short? So, yeah. so we don't have a lot of time left. Let's switch very quickly over to the local analgesia during spaying. Yeah. Right. So the intraperitoneal block it has been used for many years in in humans, uh, there are systematic reviews, meta-analysis saying you should be using for women undergoing laparoscopic surgery, hysterectomies, for example. And then we decided to look at the literature here and we saw that there was not much going on for cats. There were a couple of studies, but the design was not ideal, uh, showing that, okay, there could be something interesting here. Uh, so we, uh, we performed a series of studies. We, we started with a pharmacokinetic study to show that, you know, the dose of two milligrams per kilo of bupivacaine was safe, was way below the, the, the thresholds or the toxic concentrations. And then we went on for a more large um, clinical study comparing the analgesic efficacy of intraperitoneal with buprenorphine versus, versus for example, meloxicam. Uh, plus the intraperitoneal, uh, plus the buprenorphine in comparison with buprenorphine alone. So overall, we found that the analgesic efficacy of IP plus buprenorphine was very similar to meloxicam buprenorphine, and they were both superior to buprenorphine. And then we went on to do a couple of studies, you know, adding dexmedetomidine to bupivacaine to see if we could increase the duration of action, uh, but we haven't got there yet. So today we use regularly at the University of Montreal in most of our, our abdominal surgeries in dogs and cats, not only for ovary hysterectomies, this technique. And it looks like it gives, it provides analgesia for early postoperative uh, period. So up to six to eight hours, it adds something quite interesting there. And I find this very useful, especially for the cats that non-steroidals are contraindicated, for example. And, and cool. how, how do you do it? Can you just explain what you do exactly? Right, so <clears throat> I'm gonna talk about that. It's all on the website now. I added a bunch of videos there. We're gonna talk later during the episode number two. <laughs> but, uh, but basically, uh, this is something prepared by the surgeon. So you are sterilely <laughs> prepared to perform surgery. You do your, you, you access your abdomen uh, and then someone comes with the vial and then the surgeon uh, prepares that sterilely, the two milligram per kilo dose of bupivacaine, either 0.5% 
or if you want more volume, you can use the low concentration at 0.25%. So two milligrams, you grab the total volume and you split in, in three in, in your head, you know, and then you go for the right ovary, the right, uh, the left ovary and the hysterectomy, the area for the hysterectomy itself. And then you throw it in there, you wait 30, 40 seconds, it's amazing the peritoneum, as you know, <laughs> you're you a surgeon, it's gonna absorb very quickly the bupivacaine. And we believe, it, we don't know the mechanism of action exactly, but we believe it's a local uh, analgesic effect. You know, that that's very cool because I, I can remember, I've been a vet a long time, like Yola, and I, I remember years ago, um, a very experienced veterinarian <clears throat> telling me to do that you know, he, he called it a splash block on his <clears throat> abdomen. And I remember thinking, is there any, this sounds so strange, you know, like how could that work? Is there any data behind that? But, you know, turns out he knew what he was talking about. Absolutely, yeah, it's not a new technique by any means. I'm not claiming that, but it's just yeah. like, we took this to the next lab and we said, yeah. let's study this. Let's see if it's effective, uh, if it's safe and, and all that. And, and it, it, there's no turning back now. We've been yep. using, we're being showing that everywhere. And it's been great. It's so for anybody listening, use the splash block, use the uh, intratuscular analgesia. And Dr. Susan, you can add this episode now. Oh, wow. Um, so I will say um, stay tuned for um, episode number two with Paolo, because then we'll um, get into the feline grimace scale and pain assessment. And uh, Paula mentioned a website where he's uploaded some videos. So we'll, we'll tell you how, you how you get there too. So, so stay tuned for episode two. Make sure that you um, check us out on our website at perpodcast.net. You can see a list of all our episodes and our guests. You can listen uh, right from our website or in any uh, podcast app that you like to use or Spotify, where, wherever you listen to your, to your podcast, you will find us. And follow us on social media at Per Podcast. And give us a five-star rating, especially wow. after this amazing episode with Paolo. So, Paolo, thank you so much. Yes. Thank you so much for having yeah. me, guys. What a pleasure. Thank you. Continued. And you will be back in a week. See you later. Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, and August, Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs, and you can follow her on social media with the handle at CatVetSusan. Dr. Yola Kirpenstein is a diplomate of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at GVETSX. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app 
for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove screw-bite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page, at per podcast. 